This is Trying Again, a story of miscarriage. I'm Rachel Smith. If you've joined me now, you're very welcome. But you might want to go back to episode one and listen through. It'll give a background to why I'm on this journey and bring you up to date with the full story. The conversations that you hear in this episode will be frank. It's nothing like someone who's actually walked that journey with you, that knows the pain of losing a child, that knows the pain of losing the expectations or not having, um, you know, all of the right things, you know, the sun, moon, stars line up to actually get pregnant, stay pregnant, and then bring a healthy baby home. And they may be difficult, but they are needed. You know, it's become quite natural that we talk about her and include her all the time in our in our day-to-day lives, but it, it certainly wasn't um, natural or easy at the beginning. I think we're just at a point where it's become quite embedded in our in our life now. Stats to date say one in four pregnancies will end in miscarriage, meaning you're very likely to know someone who's had one. They may just be suffering in silence. It can't be all doom and gloom, though. There is hope. But where do you find it? This line of thought led me to Erica M. McAfee. Erica is a podcaster from across the pond who's been inspiring and talking with women in her podcast, Sisters in Loss, a faith-based grief and loss podcast for black women. I think that what's um, different about the podcast is that it, you know, solely focuses on sharing um, black women, women of color, indigenous indigenous women's stories. So um, a lot of the listeners who come to the come to my podcast are looking are listening for um, a story that's similar to theirs, but also a cultural experience that's similar to theirs. Whether you know the way they grew up in church or just having, you know, parents around them that may, you know, say certain things to them that may not be, um, 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 you know, as pleasant and knowing how to respond to that. And then also just having the representation of knowing that there are people in the community that are out there, you know, strangers online that truly understand this walk and this journey because as many as as much empathy that you may receive from other people um, when, it, when it comes to loss, it's nothing like someone who's actually walked that journey with you that knows the pain of losing a child, that knows the pain of losing the expectations or not having, um, you know, all of the right things, you know, the sun, moon, stars line up to actually get pregnant, stay pregnant, and then bring a healthy baby home. And having women who look like you in that community that can empathize with you, that can support you, but also can love on you and pray for you as you go throughout that journey. I think that's the reason why a lot of Black women have gravitated towards um, the Sisters in Laws podcast, as well as the community and the sisterhood, um, and stayed um, even after they've had successful pregnancies after loss, um, because the representation does matter. When you said about how some of the the sisterhoods helping the culture within the black community, what is it about the culture of the black community and the church community in America that you think that stopped people talking? The cultural aspect from, I guess, the black church is what I would call it overall, is that um, the the way within the black church as it started to form and came about. Um, as a result of slavery, um, a lot of the 
spirituals and customs and songs are rooted in hiding hiding things <laughs> and keeping things kind of close to the chest. So I believe that has that tradition of not sharing things um, has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And as a culture, overall, um, a lot of Black people are raised to not share their deepest, dark, painful moments um, at all. So they typically hold it close to their chest and really just go to God in prayer with it versus sharing it with the world, thinking that they're going to help themselves and others. Um, so I think that, you know, the privileges of, you know, the generation that I'm a part of is that I have the, we have the ability of social media, right? That, you know, a lot of our parents did not have growing up, right? So now we have the ability to connect with people on a different level and break down that cultural barrier of keeping things close to the chest, keeping things within the four walls of your home. How have your family, how have they accepted your kind of take on this and taken outside the four walls? Obviously, you know, when I lost my son, that's when I first started posting on social media. It's almost eight years ago. And I did an initial post and I took a, po a picture of him, you know, right after he was born. So his cheeks are still rosy. I mean, he just looked like a newborn baby. You no, know, people assume that he was just a newborn baby, that he hadn't passed away. Right. Is that the picture on your website in, in your story yeah, section? That's one of the pictures on my website. Yeah, I had some professional photos of him taken. Absolutely. And people assume, you know, that he was just you know, uh, you know, just a breathing, you know, healthy baby. And I think I had to come back and re-edit that photo or the caption or whatever I had there just to say, hey, you guys, you know, my son passed away. We're having a funeral for him, you know, next week, you know, kind of bringing it back down. You know, a lot of people are leaving congratulations and all this kind of stuff. And I'm just like, you know, um, you know, I have to tell people that he's not living, you know, we're about to bury him yeah. and we went um me starting to share that um was a was was pretty much the catalyst for my family to be more open and accepting of it did you name your babies i did both of them are named brandon jr is the is my boy and brielle is the girl um so it's been eight years for him and about seven years for her and then I have a six-year-old um, who's my living rainbow baby named Maxwell. Are there moments in the year where you'll take the moment to remember them? Yeah, absolutely. On their birth dates or their death dates or heaven is what I like to call them, I normally do some type of ritual to honor them. And then every year since my son Maxwell's been born, around Christmas time, we'll go pick out ornaments for his brother and sister and so we have ornaments for both of them for for the last six years on the christmas tree so that's kind of our um, ritual around christmas time to memorialize them one thing that i do love that my family does is they acknowledge my babies that are in heaven so my, my mom will say yes 
I only have one, you know, living grandson, but I have two others that are in heaven. And being able to incorporate my heavenly babies into my everyday life and family life, um, especially with my son, just makes it normalizes and, and really brings to light that that they were here, they existed, and they are part of our family, even though their physical presence isn't here any longer. Can you imagine that must have been really difficult for you to get to that to where you are now with it? Yeah, I think that um, you got to take it as one day at a time, you know, one step at a time, one moment at a time to where you can get to this place where you're you're willing to talk about it more openly, but really be able to do some type of ritual or memorial on an annual basis. But don't get me wrong, like those dates are still very hard your work as a doula and a grief specialist had you experience of this before your losses or was it something that you just decided you know what I'm gonna go for it I went to a conference around maternal health in the United States and the conference really opened my eyes to doing um, helping women in pregnancy and in the postpartum period and I was like I really want to do that but I really want to support women who've experienced loss you know and are getting pregnant or trying to conceive. And um, I knew that being a doula, which is a non-clinical support person, you know, doulas aren't medically trained or anything, but they do have the knowledge to emotionally and physically support um, birthing people in pregnancy during the labor and delivery process, as well in the postpartum process. Um, I started to um, really survey and ask the sisters-in-law's community to see if anyone was interested in learning how to become a birth and bereavement doula. And it pretty much was born throughout the pandemic. And I had over 50 people registered. So um, now we're on our last cohort. And I think I think by the end of the year, I'm going to have over 200 ladies who have gone through the training um, and are getting certified to support clients in pregnancy, labor and delivery, and postpartum which is a blessing. And is that something you're working just solely in the US? Do you have do, do you speak to people in the UK? Have someone in Zimbabwe, Ghana, Kenya, um London and in Australia who are in the course. So actually they're all over the world, not just US based, but obviously, you know, a lot of the statistics um are focused on the US, but I typically will try to incorporate practices um, and cultural experiences from all over the world to make sure that we're talking about relevance because the uh, uh, maternal health crisis and infant mortality is not just a U.S.-based issue. There's still there's still um, racial disparities across the world. So um, I want to make sure that we are bringing to light all of those disparities and then what we can do as a community to come together to knock those down, but also help help people in the process by helping them in their pregnancy and their postpartum periods. And what's your hopes with this? Definitely want to go to the federal level. You know, I definitely uh, want to work with um, congressmen and senators on um, um, passing a bill around infant mortality and, and focusing on infant mortality no different than the U.S. right now is focused on maternal mortality and ensuring that um, there is a sisters in law bill in there for the sisters, so they understand that they um, they have people who are going to pass laws here in the U.S. 
that are going to fight for them and their babies. Absolutely. Because it's so difficult to talk about normally um, without it being taboos in the cultural side of it. I mean, it, it, it's uh, it's admirable what you're fighting for. And and the, where the, the the place it's come from, I can't imagine anyone's turning to you to say, oh, you don't understand. I mean, it, it's not like you can't walk into a room and say, I've experienced all of this and it's needed. And it's so, yeah, it's extremely complex on how it all comes together. But um, we're going to continue to fight. We're going to continue to share stories. We're going to continue to um, do the work so that we can one day um, continue to reduce these numbers. If you could give three tips of self-care that somebody listening, if they are in a place where they think they can't, they want to get to that point, but they can't get there, what would it be? Oh, self-care. Such a good one. Um, Three tips for self-care. I would say to breathe. (laughs) It may sound simple, but it's really really, um, something that we don't do enough enough. It's to really recognize your own breath by breathing in deep breaths and breathing out. so really recognize your own breath, recognize when you are and being mindful of your breath. Um, another self-care tip is to really um, to, to um, find a passion project and see it to completion. So for me, um, something that I have taken on um, recently is yoga. Um, I've practiced yoga for a while before um it's helped me throughout my grief journey in general but um now i'm learning to become a teacher so it's been my new practice of being able to um learn um, yoga in a different manner but also be able to teach people how to do and practice and strengthen their own practice of yoga so that is my um way of doing something different and really focusing on it and seeing it to completion. Um, And then lastly, um, I would say um, another way to practice self-care is to to go to therapy or see a counselor. Having um, someone else to talk to on the journey that's outside of your immediate family and friends that is an unbiased opinion is only going to help you not hurt you. So those are my three ways of self-care. There is hope. There is. There has to be. There is hope on this journey. Just don't give up on hope. Hope. I find it an easy word to say, but a difficult one to feel. Part of me wants to remain hopeful that I may try again, that a baby is formed, grows full term, lives past birth. I, like many, I'm sure, think I'd make a good mum. I'd be by no means perfect. I mean, who is? but I think I've got a lot of love to give. So I hope. But it's something I've got to admit I struggle with a little. There's hope, and then there's the reality of being the 1% of women who have an explained recurrent miscarriage, and a woman who's nearing 40. The odds are stacked against me. I find myself weighing up options, and whilst hope may be a nice thing to think, it's also matched with the list of alternatives, one of them living childless, and all of them making me feel sad. 
you will know if you've been on this journey with me that I've been looking around the community that surrounds baby loss in awe of people like Erica, who've done so much to try and put a wing of support around someone like me. Whilst looking around for something to make me feel better, I found someone who's put their journey into a song. And this is when I heard I Can Love You From Here by Liberty's mother. Singer-songwriter Sophie Daniels wrote the song about her daughter Liberty, who died at 36 weeks. Cause I can love you from here Hold that love in my heart I can find a way to give that love a life Now we're apart You say that your, your boys know of it and obviously she's a part of your family still. How do you remember her? In, in lots of different ways. Um, I mean, I... I suppose I've just reached a point where I'm I'm a bit more relaxed about about how we remember her because over time she's become such an embedded part of our life. Um, initially, my husband uh, was involved organising quite a lot of different events to raise money for charity and became very involved with Tommy's. Um, and uh, so, so we were doing things like that, really, as as I suppose big big tasks, big parts of our lives to to make her a part of our life. And me, the Liberty's Mother campaign has made her a big part of my life because um, it's about raising awareness and raising money, and it's about using her song to connect with other people who've had similar experiences. But we also do things as a family, so we celebrate her birthday every year. Um, we go, we go out for lunch. Kids have a day off school, and they they get a small present. Really, I think just as a result of all those different um, initiatives, it, she's now become some. You know, it's become quite natural that we talk about her and include her all the time in our in our day to day lives. But it, it certainly wasn't um, natural or easy at the beginning. I think we're just at a point where it's become quite embedded in our in our life now. Still, it seems so hard. Come and break my heart and then leave me with no reason why. So at the beginning, what was the inspiration behind writing the song? Was it to, to help with grief? Because it's quite um, personal as a song. Yeah, well, it was quite a journey, really. I, I am a songwriter, so I spend, I, I teach songwriting and I also write songs usually with other people. Um, because I don't generally perform. Um, but as a songwriter, there's, there's often times in your life when you want to write a song because, uh, you want to express something. Um, and then those songs, you know, it may or may not go on to, to have a life or be recorded or whatever. And, and for me, songwriting is sometimes a way to help me try to understand what I'm feeling. Um, and, and that was, that was really the case with I Can Love You From Here. I had a, a huge sense of relief when I'd written it because I felt that I could start to understand, I suppose, really the first steps of the journey that I've been on, which is being confident about making a part of my life and being confident about being able to talk about her um, and uh, her life and her death and how it's affected all of our family. Um, and, and, and with stillbirth, I, I guess, as with miscarriage and all of these different experiences that, that humans have, sometimes it can feel quite difficult to understand how you can really live it and make it part of your life. And for me, that song, I think, was a huge step in me understanding that liberty would always be there and always be a part of my life and that it was essential that I embraced that. Um, so so that was why I wrote it. And, 
I hadn't planned to record it or do anything with the song. I had had um, friends and recording artists from time to time hear it and show an interest. And then I started to sing it at the odd um, event that, that we have at my college where we, we have a songwriting sharing event where we share songs that mean things to us. And that was the first time I had visibility of other people forming a strong connection with it. Mm. And then um, in uh, October of 2018, um, my husband was invited to speak at the Houses of Parliament at a uh, ceremony for Baby Loss Awareness Week. and he asked if he could read the lyric of the song. One thing led to another, and I, I, I performed the song there. Um, and really, that that's when it sort of took on a life of its own because I had um, it, at that ceremony there were MPs and people from various charities who who approached me afterwards, and lots of people were saying, "How can we get hold of this song?" And we would like to be able to share it through our networks. So at that point, we decided to record it and release it and use the proceeds for charity. So that's, I mean, that's quite a long time between you writing it and it being kind of public, public knowledge. I mean, obviously you, you were performing it in different points. What did that feel like? It was extraordinary, really. Um, extraordinary because I suppose, um, you know, I, I, I'm a professional songwriter, so I, we do have all these sort of ideas and egos about our work. And, and we tend to think the things that we've written for personal reasons, if we're not performers, maybe have less of a value. And I've had a huge professional and personal learning curve from this song um, in terms of, you know, the power of music, really, the power of song. I've been in a few situations in the last couple of years where uh, I've played a recording of the song or I've played the song live and it's had a very powerful effect on people in terms of forming a connection and, and, and helping us kind of, um, uh, you know, bond, bond as parents who've lost children. And that, that's just taught me a huge amount, really. Um, and it's been very powerful for me um, since I've been uh, in touch with Sands Charity and um, talking to more people there about uh, what, what they talk about being a grief journey. Um, I think I really understood it as part of my own grief journey, which was a very long one. Um, and this project, in a way, has set me free because it was about, I don't know, in a sense, kind of like fully coming out and joining that community of parents who, who'd suffered losses and and also just really embracing um, the power of the love that I have for Liberty as as the overwhelming part of the grief. I think the song really taught me that the, at the end, the love I have for Liberty is much more powerful in the end than than all of the negativity, obviously, that surrounds the loss. And grief is obviously so overwhelming, and particularly in complex circumstances. But but there is, uh, for me, there is still this journey to be taken. And at the end, um, it's brought me to a place of, um, of, of, of experiencing this love as something that's, that's very positive in my life every day. But I don't need to be with you to love you like I planned. And you were saying about your grief journey and it's taken you um, a a long time. But how long after you lost Liberty did you write the song? Yeah, so I wrote the song quite soon after uh, she died, um, before before she would have been three months old. But um, I suppose the the, the process of of accepting um, the loss 
I think uh, for me, that journey was to do with the fact that she was my first child. It was to do with um, concerns about having her siblings and just being able to survive, um, you know, myself. Um, so I think, you know, we, we make all sorts of unconscious decisions. And for me, I was I was almost kind of um, apportioning out the grief. And what's been your reaction in the community of women and partners that have heard it? The reaction's been really um, so so positive and so interesting and so energizing for me. I've I've met so many people um, that I can relate to, but I also f- have had um, many many people to me, or either virtually through social media or in person or gigs and so on, um, talking about the the connection that they make with the song. Um, and also just the way that it connects people up. Um, when I, when I put the record out, uh, there was, there was a, a big launch event in my area and another one in London. And, um, because my kids are now at the local primary school, um, there was, uh, there, there was a lot of kind of, uh, chat and, and, and publicity in this area, just local media and, and also WhatsApp groups and things like that, inviting people to the gig. So, it was a really extraordinary experience because a, a lot of people, I suppose, knew me, but they didn't necessarily know about Liberty. And the, the Facebook post that we put out um, that, that's entitled I Am Liberty's Mother, it had, um, it's had 52,000 views um, in, in the first six months. And so um, particularly through Facebook, everybody was, was, was seeing my face and, and reading about this story. And, and in quite a short period of time, I had, People approaching me in the playground, people approaching me in the local community almost every day saying, Oh, are you Liberty's mother? Um, and that was something that I really welcomed. That's one of the reasons the project's called Liberty's mother because I want to talk about her and I want people to know about her. But also it connected me to people who are coming out and sharing the most incredible stories, people who have really suffered, um, and really struggled with their own journey and, and, and people who really overcome quite significant obstacles to sort of come out if you like and say well I am um, I'm Gabe's mother or I'm uh, Amelie's mother um, and and talk about their own experiences of being able to sort of fully express who they are um, on the school run or uh, you know at, at the, the the NCT group or, or even just in their family um, and I I found that really moving because I personally think that being able to talk freely is um is really helpful you know about what whatever the thing is is in your life that, that you might want to share and um so i'm grateful for the song for for connecting me up with all of those stories what's been the reaction within um with the money you've raised where do you think it's going to go next so far, we've um, we've raised between five and ten thousand pounds. It's hard to to give the exact number because um, I've gifted the the, the royalties um, to. So at the moment, everything in terms of the the EP recording is gifted to Tommy's. Um, so that's sort of a steady trickle, trickle, trickle of money. Um, but we've we've raised more than five thousands offline through all the, the gigs and so on. Mm. Um, and Tommy's, uh, as I said earlier, they're they're all about research. But moving forward, um, we're going to publish the sheet music and that will be for Sans, um, uh, for Sans charity. So, uh, 
anybody who wants to buy the sheet music and perform the song themselves at ceremonies and things like that, the money will go there. But then it, it's just really, I think with any project like this, it's about spreading tentacles off into other areas. So the song has inspired a book which is coming out um, in October this year, and the book is called Loving You From Here. And that book is being published by a, a major book publisher and is raising money for Sands. Yeah, also I think it's the it's about the the gift of the the artifact, the song itself, because um for me, Liberty's funeral, it, it was very significant that I didn't feel that there was a song that I could play at Liberty's funeral that meant something to me. And for other people it would be something else. But for me, songs are are vitally important. Mm-hmm. Um and I've met other people who feel the same. So I wanted there to be something available. Um, so we, we've just put the song through um, the network of funeral directors um, to make it available for, for parents who are having funerals. So I think for me, it's, you know, the power of song bringing people together is something that I really believe in. Um, and that's really the gift that I want this this song to be. Um, I think it's about pr- predominantly for, for, for the loss of, of babies and children. Um, but but for grief, it, more generally speaking, I think it's, hopefully just adding a little bit to that piece of the puzzle about how we can remember people. And for me, the idea of continuous bond, of being able to continue to talk about those that we've loved in a positive way and to understand that that remembering those who've died um, and talking about them is not crazy, is not negative. It doesn't hold us back from moving forward with our lives. Um, I think it's it's healthy, um, you know, or it can be. It doesn't mean everyone has to do it, but for me, uh, for me and a lot of the people that I've met, that's a really positive way forward. And so hope. Where am I leaving it? Well, if Erica and Sophie can hope again after such sad losses, surely I can too. I think the best way to say how I feel is to use a line from Stephen King's short story, Rita Hayworth, adapted into the film Shawshank Redemption. It reads, remember, hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things. And no good thing ever dies. This episode was recorded by me in my spare room in my duvet den. A huge thank you to Erica M. McAfee and to Liberty's mother, Sophie Daniels, for joining me on this episode. If you feel you need to talk to someone about anything discussed, there's links to help available on tryingagainpodcast.com. You can join me on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram to chat and share stories. Just search Trying Again Pod. If you like this episode, please share it or leave a review so we can open up this conversation to more people. And remember to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. All I need is to love you and I can love you from here.